Stop punishing yourself with bland, chalky protein shakes and fuel your fitness with the best protein in the game at GNC. We've got the hottest brands and flavors that legit taste like cookies, your favorite cereal, indulgent desserts, and more. It's on at GNC. California certainly is always saying, oh, we want more people. And they want more people in their sanctuary cities. Well, we'll give them more people. We can give them a lot. We can give them an unlimited supply. And let's see if they're so happy. They say we have open arms. They're always saying they have open arms. Let's see if they have open arms. We're going to do everything we can to make sure that people who come to the city, whatever their immigration status is, are going to be treated fairly and with respect. The more Trump complains about illegal immigrants, the worse the problem gets. Because some experts say that migrants are choosing to make the crossing now because they fear that Trump's tough policies will make it harder to get across later. Hello, welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Leon Krause from Los Angeles, California. Let me begin today with a personal story. I went back to Mexico over spring break. I have been living in Los Angeles for almost eight years now, and going back home has become bittersweet. Of course, it's always great to see family and friends reconnect and, however briefly, get back into old habits, old conversations, share old memories. But there's another side to the experience now for me. Things change. People back home might not notice, but things change, and those of us who have emigrated certainly do notice. New buildings dot the landscape here and there. A place that we used to like has now disappeared. Things are just different. As are people. I saw an uncle that I hadn't seen in years, and he has aged. That might sound obvious, but it really isn't, at least not from the immigrant's perspective. People who emigrate live through snapshots of how we left things back home. We expect them to remain the same, and to see that they are not the same is unsettling. During the trip, I caught up with a friend of mine, a Mexican immigrant whom I met in New York a few years ago. He had emigrated to the United States as a teenager, almost a child, and had started working as a busboy in a restaurant in Brooklyn. It was there that he slowly worked his way up the ladder, learning skills until he made his way to the kitchen. It took him seven or eight years to actually run the kitchen, from being a busboy to running the entire kitchen. And doing it brilliantly, honestly. For a long while, he made quite a solid living. And then one day, late last year, he called me to say that he had gotten into an ugly argument and someone had yelled nasty racial slurs at him. He told me it wasn't the first time that had happened. So he decided to pack up and leave. He flew back to Mexico City where he found a job as a sous chef or something like that. When I saw him last week, he had one thing on his mind. He asked me whether Trump's anti-Mexican rhetoric would once again take center stage on the next presidential campaign. He told me he still wanted to go back to the United States somehow. He told me he had built a life here, but simply couldn't imagine coming back in any way if nativism kept growing. Still, the Mexico that he had left behind as a kid no longer exists either. So my friend found himself in a painful situation. A man without a country. By the way, he's an American citizen. These are the stories in the time of Donald Trump. And there's no end in sight, at least to the use of immigrants as political instruments in the nativist narrative. I had to share this with my friend who was obviously heartbroken. The recent shakeup at the DHS will likely lead to a radicalization of the president's inner circle. 
Trump seems increasingly determined to make border security and illegal immigration the core of his re-election campaign. Even worse, he seems determined to insist on an exclusively punitive approach to the problem. Instead of seriously considering, for example, an increase in the number of immigration judges to expedite the thousands of cases still pending in court, Trump insists on building a wall, shutting down the border, or even more extreme measures. And this is tragic, not only because it's obviously wrong and cruel, it's tragic because, as today's guests on the show will tell us, the current humanitarian crisis begins thousands of miles away from the border and is so complex that it will require tremendous moral and diplomatic imagination to find even the semblance of a solution. And the solution is not punitive, but the exact opposite. Jonathan Blitzer is a staff writer at The New Yorker. He writes eloquently about immigration. He recently published a three-part series on Guatemalan immigrants that should be required reading everywhere. That's what brings him to Trumpcast. It's great to have you with us, John. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. John, why did you choose to go to Guatemala specifically? I think in recent years, the number of Central American migrants coming to the U.S. has increased, and specifically from two countries, Honduras and Guatemala. And in Guatemala, over the last two years especially, although over the last several years more generally, has seen huge spikes in the number of families coming to the U.S., also individual parents coming to the U.S., and unaccompanied children coming to the U.S. And so the idea behind this series was to try to spend more time anatomizing what life looked like in certain parts of Guatemala so that we understood better what the lives of those migrants showing up at the U.S. border were like and what sorts of circumstances forced them to leave in the first place. In the first part of your remarkable story from Western Guatemala, you talk about a factor that's rarely mentioned in the immigration debate here in the United States, the effects of climate change on rural farming communities in Central America. What did you find? I had long thought, as many other people did, that climate change would have to impact rural parts of Central America and affect the number of people who left for the U.S. But what was less clear to me was what that concretely looked like. And so the idea was to go into some of these extremely rural communities, small little hamlets scattered across the Western Highlands, and talk to subsistence farmers, talk to community members, and see exactly how climate change had impacted their day-to-day -day lives and driven them and some of their neighbors to emigrate. And what I found was incredibly striking and actually much more concrete than I expected. I mean, you, you undergo this kind of reporting thinking that the vastness of a phenomenon like climate change is going to be maybe too hard to fully measure and document. But the things I found were things like this. The rains that typically would come in the months of May and June were coming much later. And so the rain patterns have been growing increasingly irregular in the last several years as a result of climate change. And that poses very specific problems for farmers who depend on some measure of regularity to natural phenomena like rains because they have to plant seeds, they have to prepare to cultivate their crops. And so if the rains don't come at predictable moments, you have entire crops that can't be fully cultivated. The droughts and periods of rainlessness are lasting longer than they ever had. So that's affecting things. There's more humidity in the soil. There are more spikes in temperature, extreme cold than extreme heat, often alternating, sometimes in a matter of days. All of these things make it much harder to grow staple crops like maize, potatoes, some vegetables. It also means that it's more expensive to cultivate these crops 
people have to start investing in pesticides because there are new funguses growing, additional fertilizer because the soil has grown less nutrient rich, and the crops themselves, less is actually produced when it comes time to harvest them. So there are all of these things, and I'm not even talking about extreme weather events that have increasingly affected broad swaths of Central America as a result of climate change. These were more day-to-day pressures that were forcing people to abandon their land and leave for the U.S. Now, how dire is poverty in these places? Describe what you saw for us. Describe the scene for us. It's poverty on a level that I think would be very hard for Americans to fully imagine. These are communities where, in some instances, there is a single place, a tiny well, where all of the community members can draw their water. People live in small, dilapidated, generally wooden huts with limited electricity, limited access to basic services. People often have too little money to eat consistently throughout the week. And so there were a number of families I would meet who would say, look, we only get a chance to eat meat once a week because we've lost so much money on our crops. Things of this nature. And to be clear, this kind of poverty, I mean, this is entrenched poverty that is a result of all sorts of complex factors from Mm -hmm. the continued corruption of the Guatemalan government, for instance, and kind of years of mismanagement of resources. But what climate change does is it gravely exacerbates all of this poverty. And so it intensifies all of this poverty that people have been living with. And it explains why people who have so little in the way of food, in the way of basic resources, and obviously in the way of money, why they would feel like they have no choice but to leave. The Obama administration gave $750 million for the Northern Triangle, Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, but almost none of it has been used to address this issue. Some of it has, but, I mean, really not much. Why do you think that the region hasn't addressed this particular factor properly if it's so important for the immigration dynamic? Uh, It's a really good question. And I actually think that the U.S. government on the whole, even during the Obama years when there was more recognition of the need to address root causes of migration, I think the U.S. government as a general matter is disinclined to invest large amounts of money in initiatives in the region to try to improve conditions for residents. And so the $750 million that the Obama administration pledged in the Alliance for Prosperity money that went to Central America, that was a heavy lift in Washington and not as easy a sell as it should have been. And in many ways, some of the failures or at least mixed success of that particular packet of investment was the result of its smallness, the fact that there hadn't been more money invested and invested in more intelligent, systematic ways. I think climate change specifically, I do think the Obama administration was cognizant of climate change, obviously in a way that the Trump administration isn't. But there are so many factors that affect this region that are so urgent and so desperately in need of being addressed. For example, violence. I mean, Guatemala, we're only talking about climate change, but obviously all these other things are true. There's very serious violence, especially gang violence in urban areas of the country. There is entrenched political corruption that goes back years and years and continues to this day. So all of these sorts of things were priorities for American investment. And I think climate change kind of got short shrift to some degree. What was striking to me, seeing some of the places where that aid money was put to use, was taking stock of how far- That it works? Exactly, exactly, exactly. A small amount of money actually goes a long way. And so it makes it, I think, especially agonizing to witness because you think, oh, if there's only a little bit more political will to address some of these issues head on, actually real progress can be made. 
Let's talk about that. The Trump administration has said it will punish the Northern Triangle countries for their failure to stop the flow of migrants, and he will do so with a genius idea, genius, of cutting aid to the region. I know that this would be a mistake, a huge mistake. Could you explain why you mentioned you found an example of American dollars at work on a project that actually helped the community in Guatemala, a project that was then cut by the Trump administration in some way, if I remember correctly? Exactly. So to start with the most recent thing, which is the, the Trump administration pledging to cut all aid to Central America, as you say, I mean, it is mind-bendingly counterproductive. There is really no one who knows anything, whatever their ideological bent, who thinks that cutting aid to the region is going to do anything to help immigration patterns. It's going to make things much worse. The aid money that the Trump administration is trying to cut is aid money that's invested in anti-violence programs, security initiatives, anti-poverty programs, programs designed to address political corruption. So as you can imagine, all of these issues are only going to get worse if you take away the little support that we have committed to them. In terms of the programs that I did see, there was a small community I visited, a tiny little hamlet of 300 people called Paraje Leon in the Western Highlands of Guatemala that was relying on a program of $190,000 over a three-year span, which is just to say next to nothing. I mean, a drop in the bucket where the State Department is concerned. And there were real demonstrable gains in what this community was able to do as a result of that aid money. They were able to diversify their crops. They were able to anticipate extreme swings in temperature. They started to grow more food to make more money. And as a result, fewer people left because they had more reason to stay, more reason to lead their lives there. The Trump administration cut that funding in 2017 because of its hostility to any initiative related to climate change. And so, you know, that's sort of a microcosm of what we're going to see on a much vaster scale now that the Trump administration is threatening to cut all aid to the region. Skeptics, of course, John would say, why would we give them money when these countries are so corrupt? Yeah. And I have to say, to some degree, the question isn't asked in bad faith from skeptics of U.S. aid. There are overwhelmingly corrupt governments in Central America. They happen to be American allies. And the U.S. has historically actually propped up governments that have shown behavior that is strikingly corrupt and that probably should be punished more systematically. Guatemala is actually a particularly clear example. The current president of Guatemala has been fighting with an internationally respected U.N.-backed anti-corruption body. And the U.S. has supported the president in his crackdown on this anti-corruption body. The anti-corruption body called the SISIG is widely revered in the region and seen really as the only way to help institute rule of law in a place like Guatemala. It's seen as a model. I know speaking to people in El Salvador and Honduras, Guatemala is seen or has been seen as this kind of classic example of how a systematic anti-corruption effort can actually really make serious progress in terms of cleaning corrupt institutions of malefactors. And the U.S. government doesn't particularly care about preserving that sort of initiative. And so you have countless examples in the region that you have the U.S. support of Juan Orlando Hernandez, the president of Honduras, who essentially won election by fraud in 2017. The U.S. does not take him to task. So there are concrete examples of corruption in the region. And the U.S. has sort of abetted those corrupt actors in the past. As for how that affects aid and the soundness of investing more money in the region, it does raise questions about smarter ways to invest this aid and creating checks to make sure that if the U.S. is investing aid in certain things, that money is well spent. But those checks, by and large, have been in place. 
and there are it's very easy for the State Department, for example, to give money, to disperse money with strings attached. And so the fact that some of these regimes have been corrupt and have mismanaged their governments doesn't necessarily mean that the U.S. response should be to pull everything out. In fact, it should mean to some degree the opposite, that the U.S. should double down its commitment to addressing some of these systemic problems and to do so in ways that, for example, you know, the initiatives I saw in the Western Highlands of Guatemala, that's money that went to local aid groups. That money did not filter through the capital. Mm-hmm. There are all kinds of ways of really calibrating what aid money does to avoid some of these obvious traps of money falling into the hands of corrupt governments. Anyway, that's a long-winded answer to a complex question. But I think what's clear is the Trump administration does not care about addressing these problems in a meaningful way. If they did care, there would be all kinds of very straightforward things for the administration to do. And it's not doing mm-hmm. them. Yeah. On this side of the border and 2,000 miles away, I completely agree. Yeah. Then in, in your analysis of the emigration dynamic, you talk about something that I found heartbreaking, debt, the costs of emigration. And here the story again turns absolutely dire. It reads like a death spiral, like a dead end. How so, yeah. John? Yeah, no, that's well said. One of the dynamics I was looking at was, okay, what happens when someone tries to get to the U.S. and fails? It's extremely costly to get to the U.S. You have to pay a smuggler. To pay a smuggler, generally, and the prices vary, you're looking at $12,000. And people don't have that money. And so what they do in order to pay a smuggler to make the trip to the U.S., is they take out loans. And there are different ways they can do this. They can go to a bank. They can go to a money lender. All of these institutions or people have different rates of interest that they charge on a particular loan. And what's increasingly happened, and this is an epidemic in rural Guatemala, is that people who take on all of this debt in order to make that first trip to the U.S., once they fail to cross into the U.S. and get deported back to Guatemala, they're now in a really dire situation because now they actually, in order to pay off the debt that they've accrued, they need to get to the U.S. because the only way to pay off that debt is to get paid in U.S. dollars. And so it's exactly as you described, this kind of spiral where, you know, you try once and you fail. And then even if you don't want to try again, you know, there was one young man I spoke to who suffered immensely on his first trip to the U.S. He traveled with a friend. His friend died in his arms when they got lost in the desert just south of the U.S. border. He didn't want to he didn't want to go back a second time. But by then, what he had taken on in debt meant that as collateral, he had put his family's land on the line. So he couldn't afford not to try again. And so you're seeing this kind of dynamic playing out, and it's it's heartbreaking to see. And it also raises questions about what it means for the U.S. to intensify its enforcement at the border itself. We tend to think, I mean, the U.S. government tends to think that if we punish people more at the border, we'll discourage them from trying mm-hmm. to come again or we'll deter others from making the trip. And part of this reporting was about trying to show that that's not even a factor in people's calculations. And in fact, what happens is the more punitive we get, the U.S. government gets at the border, the more of a spiral this debt cycle becomes. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. 
I was really taken aback by the story of this 23-year-old man who tried and failed twice to make it into the United States and is now $20,000 in debt and he pays he pays his debt $120, $130 each week traveling to the bank. I mean, people mortgage literally everything, the land of their forefathers, just for the chance to emigrate. What happens when they don't make it, when their one-time investment fails and they are forced to go back? Do they go back to just the question of when do I try again? Is it a matter of when, not of if? Mm -hmm. I think it is. So in the case that you mentioned, this young man, his name is Elias. And Elias tried the first time in 2014. He went with his friend. At that point, in order to pay the smuggler to take the two of them north, he put as collateral his family's land, the land that his family used to grow their food and the crops that sometimes they could sell in a nearby market. That was the first trip. His friend, as I mentioned before, his friend dies along the way. They get lost in the desert just south of the U.S. border. He gets apprehended, is detained in the U.S. at the border for a month, then deported back to Guatemala. He arrives in Guatemala, and now he's obviously in a bind. He has to finish paying off his debt. If he doesn't make these monthly payments, his family will lose its land. So he now has to go to another financial entity. This time he goes to a bank. The first time he went to a local cooperative, which is a sort of a local bank. This time he went to a slightly bigger bank, tried to get money for a second trip because it was the only way he could pay down the debt on his first trip. This time what he puts up as collateral is his family's actual house. And so now mm -hmm. the stakes only get higher. And to give you a sense, and this is in answer to your question of, you know, is it if they go back or when, it was really only a question of when he was going to make this second trip. The first trip was made in 2014. The second trip he made in 2018. Why the four years? First of all, he didn't want to make that trip again. He wanted to do everything in his power to avoid having to make that dangerous journey a second time. He was traumatized. Absolutely traumatized. And this is one thing, too, that isn't discussed enough. It's extremely hard for someone like Elias to talk about what he went through when he returns. There's a complex psychology around this. There is a sense of shame to some degree felt by those who don't make it successfully. There isn't a kind of openness about the perils of the journey. There's kind of a strange feedback loop that you see, and this is just anecdotal, but I would hear often, for example, that people who made it to the U.S. would really only ever talk about the successes they've had on reaching the U.S., and never the difficulties they had at being an undocumented immigrant mm -hmm. in America, especially now. And similarly, those who tried and failed to reach the U.S. are reluctant to talk about it because it's very compromising and exposing. And so someone like Elias comes back and really has no one he can meaningfully talk to about what he had just experienced, which is just a whole other layer of his suffering that's impossible to fully quantify or fully understand. But that four-year stretch, I mean, that's part of why he's reluctant to make the second trip. He is trying, I mean, he has tried literally everything to make the money he needs to pay down his first debt. I mean, he's described to me traveling. He's left his home and he's traveled to the Pacific coast to try to find work there. He's slept at construction sites to try to pick up extra shifts at different construction sites in the Western Highlands. He has mm -hmm. done everything he can. And the same thing that drove him away in the first place, the fact that there was not really an economy to support him. There was no job to speak of. The wages were abysmal. All of these things now have much more dire consequences for him because he's got to make these monthly payments. And if for a week or two weeks he can't find a construction job, he is hard-pressed to pay down that debt. And this is also where the climate change stuff factors back in. Because in the past, 
Elias did two things to make money. And he didn't make a lot of money, but he did two things to generate some modest income. One was to work at construction sites. The other was to grow and sell vegetables. And he would either do that on his family's land, or sometimes if he wanted extra money, he would work as a day laborer on bigger farms. But over the years, over the last several years, over the last 10 years or so, as it's become harder because of climate change to grow those crops, farms, bigger farms have downsized. They're hiring less day laborers. Individual families can't afford to continue to grow things like maize and other vegetables. And so one small amount of income stream that was coming through before isn't available now. So he's even more pressed than he was before. So here's the spiral, John. Poverty leads to school dropouts, which leads to emigration, which leads to debt, which leads back to poverty time and time again. That's what I learned from your piece. And it's heartbreaking. It is. And you put it so well. I mean, that is exactly it. And it's overwhelming to report on because it's just all of these different factors and you're watching them play out almost in slow motion. And it's sort of a giant snowball that just keeps getting bigger and bigger. And you see the increasing odds that some of these individuals are up against in terms of being able to live and survive where they are. So let me wrap up with this, John. Even though you're very young, you've written about Central America, Mexico, and the immigration crisis for years, and you've done so very eloquently. What have you learned? It's an impossible question. What's the solution to this crisis? I mean, it is. It's, it's an overwhelming question, but it, it's, it becomes harder and harder to do this reporting without trying to think through some of these deeper questions. So I'm grateful you ask. I basically think that the only way for us to make any sense of what's going on in the region is to think about immigration, not just in terms of a crisis at the border that has an enforcement component and an administrative component for the U.S. government at the border, but also as a problem that demands serious and thoroughgoing solutions in the region itself. So that means the State Department has to be involved more deeply in thinking through aid. The State Department has to be more deeply invested in bilateral relationships with individual governments. The U.S. has to be more of a leader diplomatically in the region, has to be more open to cooperative solutions that span the hemisphere. Typically, what happens in the U.S., and actually there are all sorts of policy wonks who can talk about this much more eloquently than I, there has been kind of a rift in how the U.S. government and policymakers in the U.S. government think about immigration. Generally, you've got people at the Department of Homeland Security and obviously in Congress to some degree working on immigration enforcement stuff, border enforcement, detention capacity, all sorts of things in that vein. And then you have a different arm of the federal bureaucracy. You have the State Department that's concerning itself with international solutions. But these two problems are really two sides to the same coin. And if we treat them as distinct separate issues that have their own sprawling bureaucracies to deal with, with often very little communication between these different arms of the government, then we're never actually going to make any headway on addressing a problem that is, quite frankly, incredibly complex. And even without, I mean, you know, the Trump administration, it's a disaster in terms of how the administration is responding to this problem. But this would have been a complex problem even without Donald Trump in the White House. And it's a problem that needs these kinds of far-reaching solutions to begin to make sense of. 
Trump will, of course, John insist on his punitive approach in 2020. I think he will most likely name a radical to head the Department of Homeland Security. What should the democratic agenda look like, ideally? And I'm not talking only about politics, but about trying to find a solution to the challenges this crisis presents, to build a counter-narrative to Trump's wholly nativist, punitive approach. It's such a good question. I hope the Democrats are thinking about an actual narrative of their own as opposed to a simply anti-Trump narrative on this issue. I think one component of it is to call out the horrors of the Trump administration's approach for what they are. I mean, family separation is un-American, and I think that much should be clear. That's part of it, is making that emotional appeal. But I, I really think a big component of this is for the Democrats to recognize that there is a problem at the border. It is an asylum crisis. It's not a security crisis like the Trump administration says. It is an asylum crisis. Unprecedented numbers of families, at least looking at numbers over the last decade or so, are showing up at the U.S. border. The U.S. enforcement system does not have the resources or the means or even the legal orientation to deal with what's happening. So I think the Democrats have to start by acknowledging that there is a policy problem that needs fixing as opposed to simply saying almost in a knee-jerk reaction to Trump that there is no crisis. There is one. And I think answers like looking to address root causes of migration, finding ways administratively at the border of addressing asylum-seeking families. There are a whole slew of actual policies the Democrats can elaborate in response to Trump. Julian Castro has done that so far. He's the first of the Democratic contenders for the presidency to actually come out, enumerate specific policy priorities. I think we'll see more from other candidates, but it's that kind of specificity that I think matters right now and not the kind of wishy-washy consensus-seeking talk of presidential pretenders. Be specific, be concrete. That's what's needed under the circumstances. Jonathan Blitzer is a staff writer for The New Yorker. You can read his wonderful series from Guatemala now. Please do so. Thank you, John. Thanks so much for having me. And that's our show for today. Tell us what you thought. I'm at Leon Krause, L-E-O-N-K-R-A-U-Z-E. And the show is at Real Trumpcast. Don't forget to vote for Trumpcast in the Webby Awards. We are gaining momentum and we need your vote to win. Go to vote.webbyawards.com. That's vote.webbyawards.com. And please, please sign up for Slate Plus. We rely on your support to do the in-depth journalism that we do. It's only $35 for the first year, so go to slate.com slash trumpcastplus. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan with help from René Pineda and Max Savage-Levinson. I'm Leon Krause. Thanks again. Gracias de nuevo for listening to Trumpcast.